Living on Earth with a Divine Nature. This is part 13. When the quest for freedom turns sour. When the quest for freedom turns sour. The text is 2 Peter 2, 17 to 22. He starts off, we're picking it up right in the middle of a thought. These, he says right there. He means the false teachers that he's been talking about since the beginning of chapter 2. Chapter 2 marks a real uh, turning point in the tone of Peter's letter to these churches. The text we read together as a congregation is when he's talking about the, the blessings of the Word and the power of the Word and the certainty of God's Word in our lives and precious promises through which you receive a divine nature. and There's all that wonderful stuff. And then you get to chapter 2, and you can't help but notice it just gets dark all of a sudden. Peter's an old man. He says that, that he's leaving this world soon. He knows he's going to die soon. And so he, chapter 2 starts with, if you weren't preaching through the book, no pastor in his right mind would look at these texts because they aren't the kind of texts that make people leave church on Sunday morning thinking, wow, wasn't that, what a glorious day to be alive. But they're important. I made the comment, you take your Bible, or, or you probably have it on your iPhone or something, but here's your, here's your New Testament, okay, this part. That's your New Testament. And once you get past about the middle of Romans. Every letter in your New Testament, we don't think this way, but every letter in your New Testament was written specifically to correct false teaching. That's why you have a New Testament. Two-thirds of it is written to correct false teaching. And so it's a big concern of Peter's. These, all that to say, are the, the false teachers. And, and look at some of the things he says. These are waterless springs. Mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly. Look at this sentence. They, they entice by sensual, that's not sexual, sensual, geared to the senses. Material, immediate, pleasurable, obvious, at hand. They enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping, who live in error. They promise them freedom. You're going to see a play on words here. They promise them freedom. Look at They themselves are slaves. Do you see that? They themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. There it is again. Keep going. For if, after they have escaped, escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, this is people who are saved. That phrase is always used to describe salvation in the New Testament. If, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled. Remember, they promise freedom. They are entangled in them. And overcome. And then this is almost an unbelievable sentence. It's too bad we read it so many times that it doesn't jar us the way it's supposed to. 
But imagine Peter writing to these people, these Christians, who have never heard this before. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness. Seriously? Then after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Let's just pray. These words are surely too big for us. This text is too big for us. Different texts require different responses. If we take your word seriously, there are texts that make our hearts leap for joy. There are texts that give us peace in our hearts. There are texts that give us promise. There are other texts that are meant to, meant to frighten us, meant to sober us. That's probably the kind of text we're looking at today. And, and uh, we, the church, we need your help. Come, Lord Jesus. We gather here in a room like this. We gather here in a room like this with the same room, same seating, same lights, same songs, same people, same people on the platform. And oh, how that can, oh, how all of that combined can numb our hearts to glory. Help us to see through all of these things that are so predictable and see the beauty and greatness of Jesus in a fresh way. Come and open our hearts, Holy Spirit, to your word. Not just our minds. We can do that. We can think. But to treasure truth, we need your Holy Spirit to come and help us. Grant that in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this text continues Peter's warning of false teachers that will certainly arise in the church. He began his warning right in the first verse of chapter 2. I talked about the change in tone, and he continues with it. This is Peter's uh, final attempt to safeguard these churches from the uh, tempting, destructive, careless words that float around in the body of Christ. It seems to be his primary concern as this old apostle is about to die. I haven't said anything new there, but just pause for a minute. Just think for a minute. Think about how opposite the tone of this inspired writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Think of how opposite this apostle's tone is from the cultural mindset of our age. As, as we come more and more to prize our, our tolerance and our open-mindedness, mature people are taken to be those who don't, who never would pass judgment on anyone else's ideas. I mean, that's the mark of a mature person. The more accepting you are, the more godly you are. That principle is just so universally accepted that it's broadly accepted even in the body of Christ. You can't get it out of the New Testament. Peter has taken a whole chapter to build a, a carefulness in the hearts of hearers. Actually, you'll see, to build a repulsion in the minds of his hearers to false ideas, false teaching. 
Nowhere are Peter's words stronger than in our text. We've spent two weeks studying this second chapter. When sin becomes fatal. We spent two Sunday mornings on that. If there's anything new in our text today, it might be a slight shift in emphasis. So in the previous two studies, Peter's been majoring on the corrupt character of these people. He'll do that again. But mostly in today's text, he starts to outline the message of false teaching in the body of Christ. He starts to unfold aspects of the approach to the people, their message, why it has appeal. And we begin to get a handle on the work they did in the church then and probably the church today. Point number one. Every false teaching comes with the promise of something special for those who will follow. I get that in the 17th verse. You don't have to take, don't take my word for this stuff. These are waterless springs and mists driven by the storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Catch the imagery. You look up at the sky from your drought-baked farm. And you think you see something promising in the distance. There are dark clouds. You're hopeful. Or you desperately make your way to a spring in the middle of the desert to relieve the agony of your your desperate thirst, but the clouds coming to the farmer don't bring any rain, and the spring in the middle of the desert doesn't hold any water. It's not a complicated picture. We would all recognize how disappointing it would be to come to a well or a spring on a hot day only to find no water there. We've all had the experience. Doesn't, you don't believe it now, but trust me. August, late July, August, the grass starts to grow a little brown. But it doesn't catch the earnestness that this would hold in the Middle East in Peter's day. Uh, A dried up well wasn't just a disappointment, it was life or death. And the rain clouds that rolled in weren't just a refreshing luxury, it meant the difference between crop and no crop, livestock and dead carcasses. But Peter is thinking of a different danger, the chronic danger of a drought of truth. Not rain, but truth. So Peter warns of false teachers who who will come, and one of the hallmarks of their message is the promise of something that doesn't get delivered, like a spring with no water, like dark clouds with no rain. They attract people the way a well attracts a thirsty crowd. They, they corral people to themselves with a great promise of something. But you have to come to them. You have to listen to them. It's always the central trait, by the way, of dangerous false teaching. When the emphasis isn't on the scriptures, but on the person, on a place, on some additional vision, on some special vision. Come here, go there, get that book, listen to that podcast. Then you should be worried. The Bible is good, but you also need this little magazine. Church is good, but you also need this group. 
You have to come here for the truth. You have to come here for renewal. You need this seminar. The promise of something special to those who will give allegiance to it. That's part of it, but there's, there's another important issue. It's at least implied in, in this uh, 17th verse. When Peter analyzes these false teachers, he's actually comparing them to the true power and nourishment of the word of God. So in saying that these are wells without water, he's really drawing attention, by contrast, to the true, refreshing, life-giving power of God's word. Now, comma. How important is biblical input in your life? In your devotional life? In your church attendance? You study the scriptures? Just what is at stake? Because whatever else Peter is saying in this verse, he's certainly saying we, we need the scriptures not not the way you need a newspaper, but you need the scriptures the way you need water. Those are two different things. It's not information just. It's not a theological religious download. It's, it's your life. It's your life. We all know what happens without water. You die. You can't live on worship alone, as important as worship is. You can't live on fellowship alone, as important as fellowship is. Those are both biblical, wonderful things. But they contain no independent life of their own without a deep feeding on the Word of God. Let me just encourage you, whatever problem you're facing right now, whatever situation you're working through in your marriage, Whatever you fear in terms of failure in the future or regret from the past, whatever steps you take to solve your problem, whatever counsel you receive, whatever you think you can or cannot do on your own, you need the Word of God in your situation like you need water. Make it. I've tried to do this. And I've succeeded most of the time. Make it an unbreakable life commitment. Refuse. Refuse to put your head on the pillow for sleep without some time that day spent in the Word. Keep God's Word mentally at the center of your life. I don't mean... I don't mean you know, we all love the Bible and praise God. It's the Word of God. It's God's holy Word. I get that. It says right on the cover that it's the Holy Bible. Okay. I don't mean keeping it central like that. Not as some kind of doctrinal agreement that you've signed on to. I mean, I mean keep it in the center of your life in terms of the time of your life. Give God's Word as much time as you give Netflix. And let it change your life. Wherever you go, whatever you listen to, for goodness sake, make sure the word of God is central. That 
implies this church as well as any other church. Peter says there are a lot of voices out there. There's a lot of wells without water. Only God's word brings life. You know these verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You ever meet people, they can just, they can just mock anything, anything of God, anything religious, anything theological. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. How do you say those next words? Do you, do you read them in, and he is like a tree planted by streams of water? Or do you see the stability? Do you see, and he would be like a tree planted by rivers of water? Stability, strength, certainty. Well, Pastor Don, if these false teachers were just wells without water, why would people listen to them? Why did people say, why did Peter say, look at, many will follow their sensuality. Why many? And that leads to my second point. Point number two, false teachers succeed by carefully picking their audience and by knowing what to promise their followers. I get that in verses 18 and 19 of our text. For our speaking loud boasts of folly, they, they entice, entice by sensual passions, thus desires, inner desires, desires for popularity, um, desires for security, desires for power, influence, Desire for wealth. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Admittedly, those aren't easy verses to handle in, in a sermon, but let's just try and divide them up into two thoughts that I think we can take home with us. First, there's this carefully chosen audience, those who are barely escaping, right there. That's the audience, those who are barely escaping, and then secondly, there's, there's this promise. They, they promise them freedom. Let's look at each of those in turn, okay, the audience. In every church, you have people who are, who are not, long, not long rooted in the kingdom, not long out of the woods spiritually, starting out. God bless them. Maybe they've just come to the Lord. Maybe they're brand new Christians. But not just that. Maybe these are people who have just experienced some real brush with ruin, pain, Maybe they've fallen into some kind of moral failure. They've, they've become all entangled in the pull of the material world. Jesus said the cares, the seed lands on the soil, but 
the desire for riches and the cares of this life. They choke out the seed. Maybe that's what's happening. Maybe they've just been careless about how they have fed their minds and hearts. We talked about the word just a minute ago. Maybe, most commonly, many in the church have been where they are spiritually for years, and they don't do. They, don't, they go, but they don't do a lot of deep thinking. They don't probe where they are spiritually. What's happening in my heart in the last five years? Everything's just assumed. That's what I was praying about when I talked about the things that are the same all the time. But whatever the sin, they've just recently been awakened from some kind of sleep spiritually. God in his grace has brought them to himself, all right? Now here's Peter's point about the audience. He says the devil that most of us don't think about very much. He never rests while these ones, 18, who are barely escaping from those who live in error. He doesn't rest while they're within reach. They've just, they've just barely escaped. Interesting phrase, eh? Right there in the text. And, and, they, and he wants them back. Church, just remember it all your life. When you're tired, when you're just plain worn out. When you're afraid, when you're weary with life, when you're confused about what you should do next, the right doors don't seem to be opening at the right time, when you're having a hard time at the office, you're fed up with your spouse, you're depressed, remember, remember, there will almost always be, the enemy will ensure that somewhere, somehow, there will be a quick solution to your problem but not God's. There's a snapshot of the audience. Look at the promise now. Bottom line of the promise is in verse 19. They promise them freedom. But, but the exact nature of that freedom isn't spelled out there. It's spelled out in the verse before it. It's spelled out in verse 18. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Sensual passions of the flesh. So the freedom offered to these people, the freedom offered by false teaching of all sorts of types, is, is the freedom to, to give in to reflex desires. Here's what I want to do in this situation. Here's how I want to handle this situation. Here's what everybody else does when they're confronted with this kind of situation. And I can do it. I love my, I love my partner. Everybody else moves in and lives with them. I can do that. You can, you can pick all sorts of illustrations. Solutions that just cater to, well, here's, here's what I want to do in this situation. This was the theme of Peter's whole letter. He opened his letter celebrating God's deliverance from the destructive desires of the flesh. We looked at these verses. Remember these? In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we spent a week on this. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his very precious and great promises, so that through them... Now, I want to ask you a question. Which them is he talking about here? You can say it out loud. It's the promises, right? I mean, it's just right there. Through them, in the middle of whatever you're going through, you, you may become partakers of the divine nature. So what, what does the word, remember, it's, it's as important as water. We talked about that. What does it do in my life? There's promises in it. Let me talk to people who are under 30. You're going to face a million situations in life where your own reflexes will tell you what you need to do in that situation. And you can do it and you can make it work and it's what everybody does. And I want to I urge you to have the patience to take God at his word and look what he promised to those who are faithful to him. I will never forget when my father sat down and said to me in a situation where I was going in a totally different direction. I don't mean a crazy, wild direction. I had a different idea. And he looked at me and he said, no, with him, no good thing will he withhold to him who walks uprightly. No good thing will he withhold to him who walks uprightly. That doesn't mean you always get what you want. It means you'll get something better. The will of God for your life is what you would always choose if you had all the information that you don't have yet. All these promises. What are the promises? What are they for? Having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's what Peter's talking about in our text today. That these false teachers say, give in. Freedom. And then Peter says, no, trust God and escape bondage. Peter says there will always be teachers who will promote God's grace in such a way that it leaves you able to do whatever you want to do. And he says, don't listen to that kind of teaching. And the people who listen to these false teachers were taught that the grace of the cross is such that it's, it's, like, it's like going to Canada's Wonderland and you got the card, it's paid for, and now you can go on all the rides for free and do whatever you want. And that's how they look at the cross. False teachers then and now succeed because so many people do not understand the difference between the kind of freedom Jesus offers and the kind of freedom that comes from a false understanding of grace. It's so important. You can't live the Christian life well without understanding this. You don't need to know everything. You must know this. If you've never heard the difference between the two kinds of freedom, let me just show you. We're almost done. Let me show you the difference between the two kinds of freedom. Peter has already talked in 2.16 about the nature of true Christian freedom. Live as people who are free, so there's the subject, not using your freedom 
as a cover-up for evil. But living as servants of God, free to serve God. So true Christian freedom frees us to serve God. It frees us to not cave in to reflex desires. It frees us to not cater to the old self-life. It frees us to live the Christian life counterculturally. False freedom just frees you from your conscience. True freedom frees you from your sin. There's a world of difference between those two things. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 5, 13. For you were called, here's the subject, same subject, you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the, for the flesh. We need to sound that alarm today. The old deception is just thriving. Multitudes of people have actually come to believe that they can bring anything and everything in terms of lifestyle into following Jesus. And you can't. It's still true, Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. On the flip side, the last part of Romans 8.13, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, last point, point number three. The danger of departing from the truth once you know it. It's quite a striking thing, the way Peter wraps up this text. 20 to 22. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Does that sound like a Christian to you? It does to me. If after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them. What's the them? What's well, right here, right? Yeah. They become entangled in them. And overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. So you got these two conditions. The last, the first. This one, knowing Christ. This one, apparently not. 21. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness. And you think, Peter, okay, that's got to be scribal error in there somewhere. He can't really have said that. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness, then after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. We've got to hurry. What are we going to do with these words? Some of the sternest words, I think, in the New Testament. So there'll be teaching. One way or another, the idea will flourish that you can have the blessing of salvation, but you can have it on your own terms. We all have our rights. I can have it on my terms. You can still continue to live by your own desires, your own instincts. 
And the fundamental warning of these closing verses is, is this, and it's very challenging. It's better not to embrace the Christian faith at all than to think you can participate in the blessings of redemption on your own terms. Just leave it alone altogether. It'll be better for you. Doesn't sound like an apostle should say that. 20, having escaped, having escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's right, I didn't show it to you, but it's right there in verse 20. So they love Jesus. They know Jesus. They love Jesus. This is where they were. They were glad he died for their sins. They understand their need for a Savior. They want to go to heaven. Who doesn't? And so they come to Jesus. And then, and then something happens, and you come to 21. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So these are my comments. This is not scripture. Don't confuse them. They love Jesus. What they resist is the call to holiness. To turn back from the holy commandment. They don't turn away from Jesus. That's not what they would say. They would say they still love Jesus. Just about everybody loves Jesus. What they turn away from is the commandments of Jesus. And Peter just refuses to let them go on thinking they can keep Jesus on their terms. He says, you, you can't. You might think you are, but you can't. You can't do it that way. You don't get to choose that. God chooses that. And then, I'm really sorry to read these verses before lunch. What the true proverb says has happened to them. Who's the them? These are the people that think I can, I can love Jesus, but I can do it on my terms. Grace just, I just, it's my get out of jail free card. What the proverb says has happened to them. The dog returned to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Yikes. The dog returns to its vomit. The sow goes back to the mud. And, and, and you, I'm sorry, but you just can't miss. Peter's a pretty good writer. You can't miss what the, the impact of what he's saying. Same old dirty stuff. Right? He's not talking about what they profess. But there's nothing new, <laughs> if you get the imagery. Real grace has to make life new. And then he says in verse 21, you can hear the synth playing, so you know you're, you're going to be done soon. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness. What does that mean? How could it be better never to have known the way than to know it but not live it authentically? And here's why. Because knowing the truth in your head 
And living on your own terms is sinning against the light. There's nothing worse than sinning against the light. It makes repentance harder the second time around. It's easier to be moved by the truth when it's brand new than when you've had it for a while and just marginalized it. So they're worse off, Peter says. Not because they're more lost, but they're worse off because they're harder to reach. So you kind of get Peter's point, but it's, it's a bit of a surprise. It's really not just the unsaved who need to be careful. Treasure the truth you know. It's hard. It's hard to treasure truth that isn't new to you anymore. Kneel by your bed every night and pray that God, Paul in Ephesians, opens, opens the eyes of your heart. I know this stuff, Lord. Open my eyes. Open my eyes.